Recovery Elevator, episode 94. You know that old corny phrase when you're a kid that you hear from your parents, patience is a virtue? It's so true, especially in recovery. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one week shy of 27 months. On today's podcast, I've got John and Adrian. John has been sober since January 5th, 1999, and his wife, Adrian, since July 11th, 2005. John and Adrian are both authors in The Painting and the Piano. This book is an improbable story of survival and love. And let me tell you, while reading this book, I continuously flipped to the back cover with a photo of them and was like, no way, not going to happen. How is this possible? But it's a true story, and I wanted to get them on the podcast. It's a pretty sweet interview. Tis the season for all your holiday shopping. Use recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. We get a percentage of the purchase. It doesn't cost you a dime and Amazon does it all. Before we get to our topic today, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. According to an NBCnews.com article, addiction is defined as a brain disorder. Well, no shit. In 1956, the American Medical Association described alcoholism addiction as a disease. Seriously, why is this breaking news and why are we still having this conversation? Somebody emailed me this article and there's some pretty cool points, so I decided to do a podcast topic about it. And don't forget, you can go to recoveryelevator.com, go to the show notes episode 94 and find a link to the article there. According to the article, addiction is a chronic brain disorder and not simply a behavior problem involving alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, or other vices. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, just released this new information of addiction after a four-year process involving more than 80 experts. Again, I thought we covered this in 1956. I was not even born yet at that moment. And a lot of the medical advancements and technologies that we have today didn't exist back then. But we still were able to figure out that addiction was a disease. Not a behavioral issue, but the stigma is alive and strong. So any article, new article, uh, evidence that comes out is still pretty cool. So Dr. Michael Miller, the engineer behind this study, says, At its core, addiction isn't a social problem or a moral problem or a criminal problem. It's a brain problem whose behaviors manifest in all these other areas. Many behaviors driven by addiction are real problems and sometimes criminal acts. But the disease is about brains and not drugs. It's about underlying neurology, not outward actions. Unfortunately, a lot of these outward actions are illegal. They're criminal acts. And the current system used to combat addiction is basically penalize the addiction out of us. Lock people up so they can't drink, can't use. That approach to curtailing alcoholism addiction has been used for over half of a century, and it doesn't work, unfortunately. Reason why? It's not a moral failing. It's not. This is not something you can simply castigate or punish out of someone. 
So here's what I like about this article. The new definition also describes addiction as a primary disease, meaning that it's not the result of other causes or other diseases, such as emotional or psychiatric problems. And like cardiovascular diseases and diabetes, addiction is recognized as a chronic disease, so it must be treated, managed, and monitored over a person's lifetime, the researchers say. I like this part in the article as well. Two decades of advancements in neuroscience convinced ASAM officials that addiction should be redefined by what's going on in the brain. For instance, research has shown that addiction affects the brain's reward circuitry. Basically, it rewires the dopamine receptors such that memories of previous experiments with food, sex, alcohol, and, and other drugs that trigger cravings and more addictive behaviors. Brain circuitry that governs impulse control and judgment is altered in the brains of alcoholics, resulting in the nonsensical pursuit of rewards, basically in the drink, even when the drink stops working. That right there explains why we continue to drink even when we're facing some pretty steep consequences. Loss of job, bills aren't paid, spouse is about to leave, third eye blind is breaking up, the snow is piling up pretty high in Montana. All the above, we continue to drink, and that's why. Basically, this study is saying that the circuitry in our brain is getting rewired. Dopamine receptors, and dopamine is not linked to pleasure. It's basically the learning chemical in our brain. But all this wiring gets rewired when we become addicted to a substance, in this case, alcohol. I continue to drink, even though the consequences were dire. I do like how this article touches up on the moral dilemma facing addiction. So a long-standing debate has roiled over whether addicts have a choice over their behaviors. This disease creates distortions in thinkings, feelings, and perceptions which drive people to behave in ways that are not understandable to others around them. Simply put, addiction is not a choice. These addictive behaviors, my drinking, it's a manifestation of the disease. It's not a cause. So with alcoholism and addiction, it has been shown that choice does not play into the factor when you're becoming addicted to these substances and when you are addicted to these substances. A takeaway from that, you might say we are all doomed, but hey, here's the good news. Choice does come into account when it comes to recovery. Choice plays a major part when we choose to get help because there is no pill to fix this alcohol thing. Believe me, I have looked everywhere, but choice does come into account when I made that call in late August of 2014 when I called Christine, who I actually interviewed about three or four podcast episodes ago. She came up to Big Sky where I was working. I was DJing a wedding shit-faced. She picked me up, and I was done drinking. The article concludes by saying, We have to stop moralizing, blaming, controlling, or smirking at the person with the disease of addiction and start creating opportunities for individuals and families to get help and providing assistance and choosing proper treatment. There is also one more paragraph regarding the stigma, which is why I'm behind the microphone right now. A 2010 study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry examined the levels of stigma associated with alcohol dependence. In 1996, and again in 2006, researchers surveyed 630 participants about their views on alcoholism. While the percentage of people who said they believed alcoholism was a brain disorder, aka a disease, increased from 38% to 47%, so a 9% increase. That shift was not linked with a decrease in stigma. In fact, over the same time period, the percentage of people who said they thought alcoholism was linked with bad character also increased significantly from 49% to 65%. Holy buckets, that sucks. That damn halftime Budweiser Super Bowl ad last year probably had something to do with that. But this podcast, it's not an anti-alcohol campaign. Beer and wine and liquor companies, they've got a marketing department and they have a job to do. They're pretty good at their job. They got a pretty big budget behind it. I charge $12 a month for Cafe RE. 
Not a big budget on my end, but that's okay. I'm playing the long game here. The long game. I am the turtle. I am not the hare. Speaking of the hare or the rabbit, I kid you not on this. My buddy has a Nissan. Took it into a shop because his engine wouldn't start. There was a rabbit in the engine. Apparently, the wires are coated with something delicious tasting to rabbits. I imagine it like a hot tamale coating. Yeah, seriously. And they had to chase the rabbit out of the auto shop. True story. Okay, and now let's hear from our interviewees, John and Adrian. How are you guys today? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, we're doing great. Yes, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, both you guys, for joining us. I think this is the first time I've interviewed two people at once. Interviewing one person is hard. I can't wait to see how easy or more challenging interviewing two people is going to be. But this is a special interview because I've got the authors, co-authors, of the book, The Painting and the Piano. And like everybody out there, I have a large to-read list. I mean, it's a stack right now, about eight to ten books. And this one jumped a queue and my mom visited a couple months ago, actually maybe five, six months ago. And she just took the book. And a couple of weeks later, she finished the book and she's like, hey, uh, you love the painting and the piano. And I have a keyboard, my piano, and there's a small little painting above it. And, and there was like this long, you know, confusion. I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? My, what's wrong with my painting and, and the piano? And uh, finally, after about 30 seconds, we, we arrived on, it's, it's a book. Yeah, and I own it. And she took it, and then she had a she had to FedEx it back or a USPS it back. And then I started reading, and holy buckets, guys! That's a fantastic book. I like to say congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, and let's get right into the the original questions that I asked for the podcast interview. Um, you know, because we're we're just normal people, and this this podcast is not about us. You know, we're going to talk about the book in, in a moment, but let's just chat about you two and your paths. Um, real quick. So John and Adrian, when was your last drink or when was your last pill? How long have you guys been sober? My last drink, my sobriety date is January 5th of 1999. And mine is uh, July 11th. <laughs> I always say 7-11, There you go. I love it. And real quick, just give listeners a little background about yourself. Go John, go first. And after that, Adrian, maybe 30 seconds to a minute. And information such as maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you guys, and what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Well, we, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm 57 years old. I spent the majority of my life in St. Louis. I, uh, after college, I moved back to St. Louis and started a underground dog fence business. It's called Dog Watch Hidden Fences. And, and I did that prior to getting sober. And then once I did get sober, it absolutely took off on me and it became huge. And I sold it about four years ago. And then Adrian and I decided to move to Florida. So we live in South Florida now. We've been here for three years. And I started the Dog Watch Underground Fence business here. So I have the whole southeast coast of Florida. And in the past four years, we decided to write the book that everybody told us we should write, The Painting and the Piano. It took about three years to write it, and it came out earlier this year. So we're pretty busy. And that's kind of brief background. So I uh, was born in New York and grew up on Long Island. And then my father was in the film business, moved out to California, got my degree at San Diego State, and then met my ex-husband and raised my family in Iowa for, I don't know, about 12 years where I became very active in politics and did high donor fundraising. And then we moved to St. Louis and that's where I got sober and met John. And, you know, I have three girls and they were 
pretty busy. They're all two years apart and they're in, you know, middle school and high school. So I devoted most of my time to being a stay at home mom. And now they're all gone. I live in Florida and I go to a lot of meetings and sponsor people like to be of service. So right now, my main focus is, you know, my recovery, my program and working on, you know, promoting our book and, you know, spreading the message. Sure. How has been the response to the book? Has it been well received? And did you sell a million copies when you first launched it overnight? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't sell a million copies. Hopefully we'll get there someday. It's been very well received and, you know, almost for every age group too. And um, the reviews are amazing. And everybody who picks it up basically says they can't put it down until they're done with it. And they pass on just like your mom did for you. And you know, we're excited about because we the reason why we wrote the book and we're very open in the book, as you'll see when you read it, is to help one person. And we said at the beginning, if we can help one person, then it's worth the journey. And we've already achieved that and it's gone way past that. So we're really excited and we don't know where it takes us. And we're just going to do the best we can with it and get the word out. And, you know, our story, my story isn't overly unique. Adrian's story is a little more unique. But, but combining them is unique. And, you know, if we could do it, then anybody can do it. And we have amazing lives because of sobriety. And, and John, you were correct there. You guys have completely different backgrounds. And, and for listeners, John, your background is more with alcohol. And Adrian, your background is more with, with pills. And, you know, I kind of just picked up the book and started reading. And you were right. I've got this thing called ADD. And usually about 30 to 40 pages is my max. I went 105 pages that night. I was in the bottom of a boat in Lake Powell in southern Utah. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I, I flipped the cover over or, or like on the back of the book, I saw you two together because for the first 50, 60 pages, I had no idea what was going on in the book. And I flipped the book over and I didn't think twice. I saw you two because while I was reading, I'm like, no way. There's no way this is going to happen. This, this can't work out. Even like, you know, three fourths of the way through the book, I'm still like, no way, no way. This can't happen. Have you guys ever, A, like read your own book and, and B, just thought about how different and, and how did this possibly happen for you two to end up together? I, I mean, I really, really feel like it was divine intervention. I mean, I just do. First of all, we became friends first. We, You know, I walked into the meeting and I recognized John from the dog fencing and he installed some fences for me, but... You know, we became really good friends first. And I, you know, I tell people the story where, you know, it was, I was coming to meetings every single day because our meeting meant seven days a week. And I called my sponsor every day. And my sponsor was going out of town. It was summertime. And she said, listen, if you can't get a hold of me, call Johnny. He's safe. You know, which means to people who don't understand AA is, you know, they it's an understanding that, you know, your sponsor is the same gender as you are. So anyway, but I called him every night because he make his business calls at five o'clock and our conversations were very much about recovery. And he would just tell me, give me examples of people in the program who had been very successful. I mean, one person is a good friend of his who had actually gone to jail and was, you know, had a felony conviction and has a tremendous life today. So those phone calls every night really kept me going. You know, I I needed that because I was desperate to get sober. 
And John, what are your thoughts on that? Is it a divine intervention or how did, I mean, the story, it's, it's remarkable that you two with such stark backgrounds, you know, living thousands of miles apart, you ended up together. Yeah. I, well, I think it was a divinely inspired and, you know, and I personally, I believe that we were chosen. And so if we were chosen to get sober, then it's our responsibility to pass it on. And that's just what I, what I believe. And for Adrian and I to get together and the parallels in our lives and to realize those and developed into a relationship to where we are today is absolutely amazing. So I do believe it was divinely inspired. And, you know, and I'll start, you know, in fairly early sobriety, early sobriety for Adrian. And, and you know, I had a few years. But, um, you know, those meetings and how important the meetings were and everything I did in early sobriety to get me to where I am today you know, was so important. And we continue to this day going to meetings, reaching out, helping people, sponsoring people, you know, being of service. And that's, that's why we are together today. Now, I want to talk about your bottom, right? I, while reading the book, there were some very grim moments and it was painful to read and you lived it. And I was reading, it was, it was tough to actually pinpoint one bottom because at the end there, John, you, if I recall correctly, you're in your apartment or your house just drinking alone and, and basically thinking the end was going to be drinking yourself to death. And Adrian, a similar path to you, there were many grim and stark moments. But can you guys explain to listeners maybe one, you know, the bottom? Was there a bottom moment? For me, you know, there were a lot of things leading up to it. But for me, it was my daughter picking her up from school and they said she needs to go to the emergency room and having to stop home to get my pills because I didn't know how long I'd be in the hospital. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get sick if I don't have them. And so I don't know. I just, you know, that's when it was like a really obvious that that drug had was more powerful than my daughter crying in the back seat, And that was really a low for me. And was one of the things leading up to me finally deciding I need help. Adrian, this doesn't even compare to that, but I, I have a lovely standard poodle named Ben, and when I was drinking, <laughs> I, I just didn't get him out for exercise, right? I was just a piece. And I remember they were like, all right, Ben, I'm going to get you out to the dog park today. And we're not talking like 10 laps. It was like a lap at best. But on my way, I'm looking back, those big brown eyes. I stopped at the liquor store, and I bought a small thing of tequila, and the shame and guilt that I felt, I was, I was drinking it in the parking lot, looking back at Ben, and I'm like, Ben, you deserve so much better. And it just tore me to pieces. So I actually related when I read that part in the book. You know, I, was, I went through that personally with my standard poodle, not quite the same. But John, how about you? Is there a defining bottom moment for you? Well, you know, I always like to say I skipped off the bottom and then I finally fell in because I had a lot of bottoms. You know, one of my, you know, five years or six years before I actually got sober, you know, my bottom was driving out of my driveway and, and my two kids are looking at me through the dining room window. They're four and two. And and I'm willing to go have an affair and go drink. And um, nothing could have stopped me. And that, that memory still haunts me to this day. But, you know, my final day, January 5th, the bottom was looking in the mirror, not recognizing who was looking back. I looked like an 80-year-old man and my eyes were black and my eyes were – my whites and my eyes were starting to yellow. My skin was starting to yellow. You know, I had three DWIs. You know, my house was almost in foreclosure. My business was almost gone. My friends were gone. My one car had been repossessed. I hadn't filed, much less paid my IRS taxes for three years. And I was going to check to see if I was an alcoholic. And I didn't know to that. <laughs> and, and three weeks prior, and I had quit eating three weeks prior to that. 
And so I was literally drinking around the clock. So my it, it but it took absolutely every single drink to get me into the program, but it worked. You know, but as early as high school people were talking to me about that I might be an alcoholic because it runs rampant throughout both sides of my family and my mother died from it at age 47. So from early on until the age of 40, I was always a heavy drinker and it always been discussed that I was probably an alcoholic. But it took up until that final stage to uh, that was my bottom and it, it wasn't a pretty bomb. And I basically had one foot over the edge. Now, while reading this book, there was one underlying theme that I took from it, and that's patience. And I want you guys to comment on, on, on the journey. Now, I've said this multiple times, and I firmly believe you can't skip any steps in recovery. You know, John, you, you had to do everything you do. And Adrian, same thing with you. You had to go through every single one of those moments. You can't skip them. But you can definitely speed them up. Every drink was part of your journey. Every pill was part of your journey, Adrian. How do you feel about that? Is it possible to skip steps in your journey or do you have to hit every step, but you can just speed it up? No, I think every step along the way is what leads you to finally, you know, hit your bottom and get sober. I mean, for me, there were just a lot of seeds planted along the way and, it, you know, it just happened the way it happened. You know, I was in a psychodrama. It's a form of therapy where you're in a group and people do role play. And there were um, most of the people in there were in a recovery of some type. And I think like my addiction was increasing. And but as I was sitting there and leaving, taking pills after I left, which is against the rules, I signed a contract. People in there were so honest about their addiction and the way they talked. And the more I listened, the more I wanted what they had. So I think it happens the way it's meant to happen. Uh, I don't know so much skipping to speed things up, but I like your the elevator analogy that you use in recovery elevator because I think everybody's bottom, it doesn't matter if it's a high bottom or low bottom or the elevator stops on the first floor or the 30th floor. I, For example, I had a really good friend she drove with her children drunk one time, and that's the only time she ever did it. That was her bottom, and she's been sober till today. Wow. My mom, on the other hand, she drank herself to death. That was her bottom. Wow. Mine was, you know, going as far as it took absolutely every single drink. I wouldn't have stayed in the program if it didn't, you know, if I didn't have every drink that I had. So I think it's everybody where their elevator stops is their bottom, and it doesn't have to be a low bottom. And boy, I'd much rather have been a high bottom. You know, I wouldn't have to go through the pain that I went through. And uh, who knows where I'd be today if I stopped drinking it to have that opportunity. But but that wasn't in the cards for me. So Sure. And along the theme of patience, when reading the part when you two met and what developed after that, how you guys just, just started talking and you had these conversations. Look, we are going to only you know, kind of have conversations. That's it for this amount of time. You guys like painfully for the reader eased into it. Um, but at the same time, we had to learn that lesson that you can't jump into things. Now describe how important it is for people in early sobriety to take their time getting into these relationships. Oh, I don't know. You mean like, well, we, we, you know, we actually heard from our counselors and they said, just take your time and don't rush anything. And Adrian heard from her old sponsor in Iowa it's like, you, you don't be in a hurry. Don't kiss them for a year. Yeah, she said, whatever you do, don't kiss them. <laughs> for a year. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I Did you verbalize that, that Adrian? Be like, hey, John, you know, I'm not sure, but if I do kiss you, it's, it's, it's going to be one year from now. 
No. We didn't quite make it. We didn't make it. We <laughs> oh, tried. Gotcha. We tried. <laughs> but we were extremely patient, and we were patient with Adrian's girls. You know, we just didn't jump right into anything, and we let we let everything work itself out over time till till everything felt right. So patience is so important in sobriety and early sobriety. And I remember saying early on, it's like I wish I had the patience to be patient because everything I just wanted to react to everything right away instead of slowing down and taking my time. And you know that old corny phrase when you're a kid that you hear from your parents: "Patience is a virtue." It's so true, especially in recovery. Now, you two, you have similar backgrounds with addiction, with alcohol and pills. Do you feel it's important for somebody to find a life partner who's also in the program, who also has a similar background for you? Or can somebody, you know, can somebody date a normal drinker, a normal uh, Vicodin user? I'm just kidding on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I just shared this at a meeting. I don't think I could be with someone who wasn't in recovery. First of all, like now, if I smell alcohol in someone's breath, it really makes me nauseous. And I think, and it's not even the actual substance. It's just the mindset, like working a 12-step program, you know, doing a 10-step, making an amends, seeing your part in things. Like, I just don't think normies think like that. You know, or you say, I want to be part of the, you know, do you want to be part of the problem or the solution? Like normies just look at you and go, what are you talking about? I mean, it's a whole language. What do you think? Well, I I agree. And I think you're not on the same wave unless you're on the same program. And and it's not so much the temptation. In my case, like if I was sitting across from a woman who was drinking, it's not so much the temptation of drinking is that after the first or second drink, you, you hear that the change come, and it's very uncomfortable. And obviously, we're, we're around people who drink from time to time, but as soon as you hear that change, it gets really uncomfortable, and we tend to leave right after that. So dating somebody, I think, would be extremely difficult. It's probably not impossible. I know some people who have done it, but in my case, I, I don't think I could do it. I just departed from a relationship and just finished one with, with a normal drinker, and she was. It, it, I had no indication that there was an alcohol issue going on, but there were many times, John and Adrian, where I wanted to work the steps. And and that's also a character defect on my part, right? I'm trying to control how she's acting. But I feel like we have a luxury. We have this amazing opportunity in recovery that normal people don't. We get to work these steps. And regardless of how you look at them, they're, you know, they're beneficial to everybody, whether you're a normal drinker or not. If you can fully go through you know, what, what the program tells you to do and successfully do it, God, you learn a lot about yourself. And there was many times I was like, sweetheart, have a seat. Let's just, let's just pull out a pen and paper and, and do a fourth step. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, well. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity, you know, not something that you got to look at like, Oh God, I get a sponsor and do some steps. Look at it like, man, I got to do some tremendous personal growth, which usually that isn't that easy. And so John and Adrian, quick question, what's on your bucket list in sobriety? Well, we, we've done accomplished an awful lot yeah. that we've wanted to accomplish, honestly. And, you know, but pretty much just continued on the journey we're on. We love for the book to get bigger and it is even without us getting in the way um, because we think it could help so many people. And we're doing podcasts and we're speaking at book clubs and speaking at libraries. And, and, you know, a lot of people, especially normies out there or early in recovery, haven't heard a lot of this before. And so they're incredibly interested in our journey and what we went through because they don't know about it. And when we give a talk, we give it as an AA talk. And so that 
if the people aren't in recovery, they at least know what goes. It's educating the, the public yeah. almost on, on what goes on in AA so they understand us better and we understand them better. So I think it's pretty much just to continue this journey. We don't have any wild plans to you know, buy a mansion in Monte Carlo or anything like that. We just want to continue on this road and help as many people as we can. And that's what we said yeah. from day one when we wrote the book. It's- I mean, I did say, like, honestly, if the book really took off and we were making – you know, a substantial amount of money. I've taught, you know, I'd say I'd love to have a foundation or some kind of scholarship for people to go to treatment. You know, another passion of mine is the court system. And I would love to become more involved with that because the, you know, the judicial system hasn't changed a lot in regards to foster children and sending them back to parents that really aren't capable of taking care of them. And, you know, I even looked into that and starting some kind of organization for that. However, the problem with that is it's a state by state issue. So it's really hard to do right now. But if the book is really taken off and I'm not spending all my time on that, it's probably something I would love to do down the road. Yeah, you know, in both of our cases, and I'd say probably, I don't know, as high as 95% of the cases, the addiction can be traced back to your childhood. And if you, if you see in our book, both of our cases go back to childhood, and in particular, the mothers in most cases, too, and the relationship you have with your mothers. And so that's that's where the interest is, and possibly even open up a women's recovery home. We talked about doing that here in South Florida, although they're fairly abundant right now. So. John, let me ask you a question, and you guys both comment on this, is what you just said is 95% of addictions go back to people's childhood. I think I'm the 5% on that, really. I've, I've had people ask, you know, well, how come, what happened in your life that made you drink? Mm-hmm. And, and reading your book, uh, you, guys have, you guys have plenty of reasons to drink with your childhood. You guys have overcome a tremendous amount of adversity, but I, I'm, I'm just a white, privileged kid from Vail, Colorado, <laughs> who grew up an alcoholic. Wow, and no issues in childhood? I mean, that I can think of. I mean, we've, yeah. we've dug pretty deep, but my parents, you know, my parents were incredible. I want to do just what they did if I am blessed with the opportunity to have kids and, and, and do that. But, you know, could it be that alcohol is it's as simple as this, that it's one of the most addictive drugs in the world? Oh, I think so. I mean, there are those percentage of people who start late and, you know, and you see them in, you know, in AA rooms where they didn't start drinking until, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. And uh, it typically hits them pretty hard at that point, a lot quicker. But in most cases, at least in my experience, it, something happened in childhood, some some trauma, um, you know, divorces or abuse or, you know, deaths or for whatever reason, typically it goes back to childhood. Well, I also think, and again, I'm not a professional, I think there is a genetic component. So maybe like if you searched back in your family, maybe grandparents or great-grandparents might have you know, had an issue. And and, I mean, I have met people like you said, I had a great childhood and I'm an alcoholic. I mean, they're out there. It it does happen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a confusing beast, confusing disease where, yeah, it's your biological makeup. And I have read that 10 to 12% of people are, are wired to become alcoholic if they make the choice to drink and if they drink enough. And I've also read that alcohol is, is a drug and that everybody will become addicted. Say if we all live to be 500 years old, my brother, who's a normal drinker right now, he might be become an alcoholic at age 417. 
Right. And same thing with, you know, baldness. Everybody will go bald, male and female. I probably won't go bald in my lifetime. Thank you, Grandma Churchill, on that one. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, but like if I live to be 194, I would have no hair. And so after doing the podcast for uh, this almost 100 episodes, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching. There's some pretty cool backgrounds and, and ideas and, and theories out there. But Adrian, I got a, I had a question for you with, uh, with, with the pills. I know a lot of people are in pain and we're talking physical pain here. Um, right. And those pills, they work. And when they mix, when you mix them with alcohol, that's potent and it, it can oh, yeah. be extremely addicting. But you had a, a lot of back pain, herniated discs, and you probably still have back pain, but you're not using the pills anymore. How have you done that? Well, let me just say, I, I mean, actually, I am having back surgery at the end of this month. I mean, I it's genetic. I have a terrible spine. It's It's way different taking pain medicine when you're not in recovery. You know, I think I s- said in the book, you know, my ex, I was really, I think my disease was dormant for a, a while. I was very cognizant of the fact that I was born addicted to heroin. And so, you know, I had three C-sections, a gallbladder, never finished my pain meds because I was afraid of them. But, you know, then these surgeries kind of took over. My ex-husband also encouraged alcohol with the pills. And then I've had surgery. But you know what? When you're working a program and you stay close to your higher power and you talk to your sponsor, it can be done. And so I guess, you know, for for me, the pills were just a symptom. I was miserable. You know, I was so emotionally, physically tired, and I just had it. And the emotional abuse from my ex-husband, I was in a terrible marriage. And it was just a perfect storm, you know, because I I remember consciously crossing that line. I mean, I would take it back today, but in that moment, I was so down. You know, you just, I don't know if I could say the F word, but you just get the efforts. But I, today, I have too much to lose. I, I love the life I have today, and I'm very happy. And, you know, I just work on being the best person that I can be. Does that explain the question? I don't know. I, <laughs> no, it, it, it does. It does. In the case of the efforts, yeah, I've, I've had that you know, a short, no shortage of hundreds of times before I got to where I'm at today. So it's normal. If you're listening right there and you have a case of the efforts, don't beat yourself up. That's a normal feeling. And I'm eager to hear your response to this question. Adrian, we'll let you go first. And John, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't feel sorry for yourself. The pity pot is very dangerous. You know, what I've learned, and and John has helped me with this tremendously, is to have patience. I am a reactionary person by nature. I am a glass half empty. And get upset very easily and I still have to work on this and so I think the biggest thing is just have patience things will pass John likes to tell me if I'm really upset one day he goes you know what tomorrow could be the best day of your life and that's why I love our relationship because he's a very positive person and I have to work at it there's that patience theme again. I hear yes. you. It's tough. <laughs> and John, how about you? Well, I think a younger version of myself, I'd probably say yeah, there's no shame in asking for help. And uh, like I said earlier, 
I so wish I got sober, you know, two decades earlier, my life would be completely different today. You know, and I heard a lot of people along the way because of it, and I heard myself, and, and, and I don't like that. But, you know, they would say in the big book, don't, you don't wish to shut the door on it, but I wish I could shut the door of it, on it. I don't like to think back to that. So I, w- I wish I would have asked for help earlier and not been ashamed of it and tried, you know, my ego was going, I don't need help because it caused a lot of, there are a lot of consequences because of my continued drinking. I'd also go into, you know, change. The the program's really simple to me. It's all about change. It's change, change, change. And a friend of mine says, mm-hmm. change one thing every day, you know, try eating your cereal with a fork, but try and change one thing every day. And uh, and that's really all that, that's all that the program really is to me. It's just try something new, different playmates, play pens. And so that that's so important to me. And that, and keep working the steps until the steps work you. At some point, the steps just work you. And, that, and have patience. The patience is the theme of the day, obviously, because well, it all comes, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Mm-hmm. And that's the journey. We can't skip any steps. It just happens when it happens, when it's supposed to happen for us. Now, you said, I wish I could have reached out for help earlier says about every single alcoholic and addict out there. Um, That's a very, very true thing. I think that's due to the stigma. I can't think of any other, you know, societal issue right now where people reach their most acute moment before asking for help. And and John, unfortunately, with with your mother, uh, it was too late. Um, Yeah. And I I was sorry to read that. And I'm I'm sorry you had to go through that. But that did shape the trajectory and that put us on the microphone today. Well, you're absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, where can we find this book? Well, the the book it's it's an e format hard book or soft book is available at Amazon. It's at Barnes and Noble online Kobo ebook format. We have our website is paintingpiano.com, and uh, that kind of brings you up to date on events. And there's more pictures there and more about us. And it's being revamped right now, but um, all that information is there. And so we're we're available almost anywhere you look. We're in libraries. We're, we're in a lot of libraries now, and the Audible will be out, you know, sometime early next year. And they're actually even we have a screenplay that's being done that should be done in a couple of weeks. And I mean, we're not going to say who it is right now, but we have a big Hollywood star who's interested in doing the movie. Ah, oh, so. damn it! I was going to say, can I play John Lipscomb? <laughs> no, what you can't do that. But I'm playing me, and Angelina Jolie's playing Adrian. Oh, there we go. Well played. <laughs> That's well played. Dark, no. But anyway, yeah. we don't know if that goes anywhere. But we hope it does because it would just it would help so many people out there. And just because of our tandem journey, it's the parallels of our journey and together. And so. Yeah. Yeah, and, and listeners, probably once a week or a couple times a month, specifically for books, I have authors, uh, you know, some of them have physically mailed me their books and say, hey, can I be on your podcast? And I usually decline those because it's hard to find people, it's hard to find interviews that are relatable at that point in their journey. But I read this book, like I said, my mom put it in the front of the queue for me, and the book is fantastic. I highly recommend it. And John and Adrian, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you guys could answer these questions each within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you guys ready? Okay. We're ready. John's going first. <laughs> John, what was your worst memory from drinking? And Adrian followed up with, what was your worst memory from your addiction? Uh, by far and away was when I my two children were looking at me through the dining room and I was driving away to continue my drinking and affair. Man. Okay. I, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, leaving my daughter crying in the car while I had to run into the house and get my pills. That was by far the worst moment. And Adrian, we'll start with you on this one. We've all heard of the aha moments. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that, yeah, I really need help? 
Yeah, that, the day yeah the day I went to my counselor and said I'm an addict and I need to get some treatment. Mine was I realize when I started drinking in the mornings and around I'm always been an early, early riser so around five thirty in the morning I start drinking in the mornings to stop the shakes from the night before and that's the only way I can control it. I go you know what we may have an issue here and that was a year before I got sober. You know, on the other hand, though, I had an aha moment in recovery where I wrote the letter to my mom. And that was, that was my burning bush moment, and my life took off after that in sobriety. And that was six weeks into sobriety. I know we didn't really cover that, but, um, but that, that was huge. That's that was a valuable huge. point. Because, yeah, and talk to me about that because I remember you went to her grave and, and read the well, letter, my, right? Uh, you know, I was kind of, when I got in the program the first six weeks, I was pretty miserable. And I was thinking about going back out and drinking if things didn't change real quick. And my counselor in that patient said, will you write a letter to your mother? And I said, why am I going to write a letter to my dead mother? And I was angry about it. But I was open to suggestions and to try something new. So I went home and did it. And it took about, I don't know, three or four hours to write a two-page letter. And I just bawled all the way through. I cried and cried. And then I brought it to my counselor. And I basically threw it out on her desk. And I said, here's a letter. And she said, well, now I want you to read it in front of your outpatient group. And I said, I can't do that. And she says, yes, you can. So that night, we had about 14 people in outpatient. I read the letter that I wrote to my mother. And I didn't realize all the anger and resentment and abandonment issues that I had with her. But when I finished reading the letter, I literally and physically felt a dark gray cloud lift off of my shoulders. And honestly, since that time, I haven't had a compulsion or desire to drink. And that was six weeks into recovery. So that was my aha moment the other way, my burning bush moment. Wow, that's incredible. And what's your guys' plan in sobriety moving forward? Uh, Just to continue to promote the book and be of service to people in and out of recovery. You know, I like to say, like, being of service, especially for people new to recovery, to me, it's not just, you know, going to a meeting and making coffee, but... You know, it's helping the per- your neighbor next door or somebody on the street or, you know, it's just being the best person that you could be. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, I think this book has legs and I think it'll get big. It just seems to be going in that direction, which is great. But at the end of the day, it's just one person reaching out to help the other person to help. And when you sponsor somebody and you see all of a sudden that aha moment go off in their eyes and they physically and verbally change in front of you. It's amazing change and have a, a life where they're giving back to the community. And, you know, it's like paying it forward. There's no, you know, a new house isn't going to buy that feeling that I get from when that happens, you know, to somebody I'm sponsoring. So we continue on this path. If the book gets big, the book gets big. If it doesn't get big, it doesn't get big. And we're happy the way we are. And we'll keep sponsoring people, keep going to meetings and keep leading a sober life. That's about 93 podcasts in a row that service and helping other people have been, has been mentioned. <laughs> Interesting. Now, what parting piece of guidance can you two give to listeners who are thinking about getting sober or are in recovery? I'd say don't be afraid to ask for help. There's no shame in asking for help. If you, even if you think you have a problem, you know, reach out to somebody that you know who may be in the program or may not, or, you know, or a counselor or a nurse or whoever you know. But don't be afraid to ask for help because there's no shame in this. My suggestion is, you know, once you get in recovery, stick around until the miracles start to happen because they do happen. And, you know, you hear a lot of 90 and 90, 90 meetings in 90 days. I'd rather them go to 270 meetings in 90 days (laughs) or, you know, a thousand meetings. Go to two or three meetings a day because... 
you know, you sure had time to drink or drug that amount of time. And you just pick up a lot more when you're going to two or three meetings a day at different places and, and stick around until things start to change and the miracles happen. Too, I see it too often where people just don't give it long enough and they go back out and, you know, people die from this. It's serious. And uh, we see it every day down here in South Florida. It's terrible down here. And, uh, but if people stick around long enough, the miracles happen. It's terrible in South Florida. Strange. It's also terrible in Montana. I think it's terrible everywhere, but we're on the right track. We're, we're both helping to combat the stigma, helping other people. It's fantastic. I'd love to meet you two in person. And we chat about this before the interview. We're having a retreat in Bozeman, Montana, August 24th to 27th. I would love to have you guys come out as featured guests and talk. So really, I want you guys to think about that. Thank you. We'd, we'd, we'd love to do it. Yeah, we would. At least it's not in January there, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. John, Adrian, I very much appreciate it. Thank you're, you you're for welcome. having us. Thanks. So I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw an article explaining the health benefits of drinking red wine. thought to myself, eh, what the hell? I'll give it a click. So I've been sober for over two years now, and according to this article, I'm missing out on some great health benefits from drinking red wine. Number one, it appears there are cardiovascular benefits from drinking wine. Wine is also loaded, those are air quotes, loaded with antioxidants. Those statements, sure, they hold some veracity, but I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit. I'm not a doctor or a personal trainer, but I got a great idea of how to get cardiovascular benefits. Take a walk. Do the stairs. Go on a light jog, a stroll. All those are a hell of a lot better than drinking a glass of wine, and you get much more cardiovascular benefits from going on a run or simply walking. Antioxidants? Well, I guess you could drink the wine, or you could go to the source. Yeah, go ahead and eat a lot of red grapes, and some jammies, and some berries, and all that other stuff that they mash up together to make wine. But only this time, when you're at the source, you avoid the ethanol. Well, ethanol with a couple ingredients added to it to make it palatable. Well, so it doesn't kill us. Ethanol then turns into alcohol. Alcohol with berries and all that stuff, uh, yeah, that's red wine. But go to the source. You're going to get a hell of a lot more antioxidants if you go there. Now, before we depart, I want to comment on something that John and Adrian said. And again, I mentioned that we've heard this in every single podcast episode up to date. That's being of service. As I mentioned in the previous two podcasts, I am riding on the struggle bus. Riding, not even driving. I'm just going along for the ride. I'm tugging a wire on the side of the bus saying, hey, next stop, please. But the struggle bus, you just got to keep going along with that ride until it's ready to stop. Today on Sunday, at the recording of this podcast, my struggle bus, it was going full steam ahead. And while editing this podcast, I heard both of them say, be of service. So what I did, I got on the phone and called five alcoholics. Five that were struggling that I knew of. I only got two of them on the phone, but we chatted for a while. And it's funny. Didn't really want to do it, but once I took that action and started talking to alcoholics, I felt so much better. It doesn't have to be other people who are struggling with alcohol. You could unload groceries, clip grass, do whatever, but just be a service. It's amazing of how much better I felt. It's almost unfair because some of the people are like, wow, Paul, thank you very much for the call. I don't want to tell them like, yeah, yeah, no problem. But really, you know, I'm kind of just doing this to benefit myself here. I don't think you're going to tell people that, but it's amazing. Just be of service. Get outside your head. And that is the key component right there. As soon as I get outside my head, which can be a dangerous place for me when I'm on a struggle bus, I feel a hell of a lot better. And for me, one of the best ways to get outside of my head is to be in nature where I can access my higher power and also chat with other individuals who are struggling with alcohol. Hell, this thing's communal, and we got a lot of things to talk about. So recovery elevator, we took the elevator down, we got to take the stairs back up. 
we can do this.